Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have Paula Thomas. Paula, welcome. Thanks, Thomas. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to have you. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a bit about yourself and what you do? Oh, I'd love to, Thomas. Thank you. So I am certainly uh, these days best known as show host for Let's Talk Loyalty, which is a loyalty industry podcast dedicated to marketing professionals. So I'm super proud of it. And as a fellow podcaster, I need to tell you how much work goes into that. Um, I've been a podcaster for about two years, but um, before that, I was consulting for loyalty programs, I would say, for probably another 10 years. So I do know that industry extremely well. And then lots of other varied things, I would say, in the background as well. So digital marketing, e-commerce, um, a lot of airline experience. So, yeah, I like variety, Thomas, is probably the best way to describe it. Well, the podcast is going on maybe 130-odd episodes for you now. So um, Exactly. What's the, the best thing or one, maybe a few of the best things that you've learned from a, from a guest or taken away from an episode? Yeah, it's a great question, actually, Thomas, because I always start my show asking my guests what is their favorite marketing statistic. So my, I suppose, idea around that is, first of all, to learn something myself, of course, um, and I suppose for the audience as well, just to add value for them, just to give them something as an immediate hook so they can decide if they like the sound of this guest or not. And I think to directly answer your question, my favorite one was something that's becoming um, a very big issue, actually, I think for, uh, for big brands and certainly anybody running a loyalty program. And it's the fundamental understanding, Thomas, about what is the purpose of a loyalty program. Because I think commercially, what brands uh, do is they invest, um, quite rightly, of course, with an expectation of a return and that their customers will behave in more loyal ways, more profitable ways. So the statistics on the business side is that marketeers, about 66% of us would say that a loyalty program's objective is for the customers to be loyal to us. But actually, it's a very different story when you talk to consumers. When you ask a consumer what is the purpose of a loyalty program, they say, and this is about 73%, so the majority would say that the objective and the purpose is so the brand can be loyal to them. So it's almost like everybody's waiting for the other side to, to move first. So I think that's something that really changed my perspective in terms of how do we position loyalty programs, both internally and externally. What do you conclude from that dichotomy, if you will? Well, I think as I was planning to, you know, see what we might be talking about today, Thomas, it really reinforces, I think, what you're all about. So for me, loyalty is about a company's integrity and how it can take care of its customers. And another of my guests, actually, I was reviewing one of my shows today, and one of my guests just made this really super comment where he said, you know what, customers are the only source of income for a company. So why would you not want to be loyal to them, to take care of them? And obviously, all customers are not equal. But for me, I really do believe that that's absolutely the biggest learning, is that mindset shift 
So if I go into a management meeting now and they're looking for reasons why they need a loyalty program, then I usually just kind of want to leave the room. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking it's not my job to convince you to be loyal to your customers, you know, that that should be the founding principle of, of why I might even be there. So, yeah, I think that's what I've taken away from that particular statistic. So um, regarding the podcast, just briefly, why do you do yeah. it? Why do you podcast? It's a great one, actually. Um, I started it for two reasons. One was personal frustration in that I wasn't getting to do all of the reading that the internet was offering me. Um, clearly, it's a, it's a big place. And I was feeling undereducated and not up to date on what was happening with, with loyalty marketing. And I certainly felt that... Um, you know, I had a lot of questions and I wanted to have access to other people's brain power. And I suppose the second part of it was I was looking to do something that felt innovative. Um, I'd been doing a bit of work with a coach myself in terms of what my own values were. And I was just kind of desperate to do something that hadn't been done before. So Let's Talk Loyalty is actually the world's first podcast for B2B loyalty marketing professionals. Um, there are other podcasts for consumer loyalty discussions, et cetera, and other topics, I suppose, like Net Promoter Score have, have podcasts. But yeah, that's, I think, probably what I'm most proud of. When I first um, started doing research on you in terms of your background and everything, I thought, all right, loyalty programs. And for whatever reason, the first thing that came into my head was like buying coffee, you know, the coffee card when you um, yes. buy five, yes. you get your six free or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. What do you make of those types of program um, programs? And also, um, have you got any innovative ones that you like to sort of share? It's also a great question, Thomas. I think you've been reading my mind. It's where we uh, we talked about this before because coffee is such a relevant topic um, in the whole loyalty industry. And you're absolutely right. Stamp cards, they were actually the very first, um, I suppose, mechanism um, that businesses used. Actually, even in the 18th century, early 19th century, um, there were postal systems. So like Green Shield stamps, which I think became very big in the UK at, at one stage as well. So, so stamp-based loyalty is the simplest way, I think particularly for small merchants, um, to simply acknowledge that somebody has visited and been a customer on a certain number of occasions. Uh, the limitations, I guess, around stamps is generally you don't get any data with them, certainly the, the offline ones. There are obviously digital stamp-based programs where you do get the data, but certainly in the past, that has been the biggest challenge. And they were also, I suppose, there was lots of risk of fraud. So, you know, if your friend happened to be behind the counter and he got to know you or she got to know you, they might stamp the card a few too many times. So <laughs> it just became something that I think owners were a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, and my favorite example, I suppose, in terms of emerging models is, again, in coffee loyalty. So what is happening um, both in the UK, in the US, and even in Scandinavia is the concept of a fixed price subscription to a coffee shop. So in the US, for example, it's been led by a brand called Panera Bread, which to be honest, I hadn't heard about myself, but it is a very big chain, about two and a half thousand stores, and they predominantly focus on, on the lunch market. Um, so, so certainly wouldn't be well known, obviously, in coffee like Starbucks, for example, as the market leader. But what Panera Bread realized was that there was a, a huge underlying guilt 
that customers had because of the amount of money that they were spending on their coffee. And the research that they did showed that the average customer would spend about $1,200 a year buying, you know, lattes and, you know, cappuccinos going in and out of work, perhaps. So as an alternative, what Panera Bread decided to do through their loyalty program was to create a fixed price proposition for unlimited coffee. So it's $8.99 and you can go in as often as you want. There's obviously terms and conditions in terms of frequency, uh, but literally what they have reported back, Thomas, from a business perspective is that, first of all, the frequency of people going in has dramatically increased. The, um, the cross-sell, the upsell, and also the brand metrics, you know, really have gone through the roof. And interestingly, that same company also operates uh, Pret-a-Manger in the UK. So if I'm guessing correctly from your accent that that's where you're based, then you might have seen Pret also talking about their 15-pound uh, proposition. And I think, uh, you know, it's really very well timed around a pandemic, dare I say it, because the business is probably on its knees, dare, you know, if I was to, to guess from the outside. But from a customer perspective, it does build trust. So again, thinking about your values of ethical marketing and integrity, I really think customers can kind of go, okay, fantastic. I'm, I'm happy to spend my 15 quid. All I need is five coffees and I'm winning. So I think it's a win-win situation. Yeah, I think um, I have seen more and more, uh, should we say, companies going to the subscription model. I think I might be wrong about this, but I think even Audible is going to a subscription model where um, you get, rather than by using credits, which is what you previously did, um, yeah. you pay your subscription probably about, about the same amount and you can listen to as many podcasts as you want. So I think it is going, lots of companies are using that. Forward, You're absolutely right. And uh, I'm not surprised to hear that Audible might go that way. And certainly it would increase my listening of their products. And we all know, I suppose, books are sold on the basis of recommendations. So I'm pretty sure their business model is based around that. But I think what differentiates, um, you know, the examples that we've talked about is that there is a physical product that has to be produced so I do think it's a fairly simple model for a digital business. So we all know Netflix, for example, and, you know, again, consume as much as you want to. It's the fact that you can now get something that has to be physically produced and could be very easily abused. Um, so for that to be something as well, and even for, you know, I believe there's examples in the car business um, where they're starting to say, pay a subscription, have access to a car, you know, maybe a sensible car during the week, a Porsche at the weekend. And uh, yeah, it fits a lot of the environmental concerns around driving um, and really just gives you access to products that you need at a certain level. Have you got any thoughts on, as I was thinking about this from my perspective, because I'm sorry, I don't have a, um, a loyalty program for my company. And oh, obviously, I okay. went through the thoughts of, you know, what would it be? And initially, I was just thinking, you know, uh, a certain number of months, and you get a particular X item, for example. But yeah. I think I've heard you say in one of your episodes, it's, it's almost very transactional, if you will. So um, outside that thinking of like um, do certain number of months and then get X, what, um, what am I missing there in terms of something more, should we say, 
significant or meaningful from a yeah. from a loyalty perspective? Yeah, it is a great question, Thomas. And the reason I didn't call my podcast Let's Talk Loyalty Programs was because I don't believe that you always need a program. So that is absolutely fundamental. Um, so it comes back to loyalty as an emotion, loyalty as a mindset, and loyalty as an intention. So for me, in a B2B world, which is clearly what you're operating in, I think the first step is, of course, identify your best customers. Now, you might have some all at you know, the same price plan or fixed service fees or retainers, but there is almost always, in my experience, an 80-20. So 80% of your revenue is coming from 20% of your customers. So the first step I would always say is be super clear and do the, you know, the accounting work to make sure that you're absolutely clear on who those people are. And then very simple things, and it mightn't be COVID friendly at the moment, but, you know, taking your top customers out to lunch together, maybe as a group of, you know, 10 people who are all, you know, obviously running digital campaigns, all of a sudden makes them feel like they're part of your world. They're part of your industry. They are valued. And it is just a lunch. You know, so from your perspective, it's easy to manage from a time perspective, from a cost perspective, and you never know what extraordinary connections might happen for those people between each other. Because I think one of the absolutely essential upcoming principles that we need to talk about is community. And I really feel that loyalty programs have this default to being just a bi-directional marketing. So yes, it used to be the brand to the customer. Increasingly, we're seeing the customer being able to connect back with the brand where it's, you know, maybe social media. But brands like IKEA, for example, I interviewed on my uh, show, and I was really impressed with their thinking. And it was a really, I suppose, around the idea that IKEA has a lot of challenging products, certainly for people like me, um, it's part of the cost base, and I know why that is the case. But people who love IKEA products can advise each other, you know, on how to build the desk or, you know, organize the room or style the bathroom. So they are certainly building a community of people who want to be connected to each other based on a common love of that, um, that style of, of product. So I definitely think for your business, you know, points are very transactional. That is the limiting factor. And we talk much more about um, emotional connection. And I, to me, that really is something that can be just very simply human. So, I mean, in summary, my interpretation of that would be um, not just thinking about, you know, giving things, but also thinking about improving the relationship, essentially. So picking the best ones, like you said, and then finding ways to improve that relationship would you say that's accurate that's absolutely accurate thomas and i'm sure again you know the style of business that you're doing the way you've branded it they inherently know they're valued on some level and of course month in and month out you're delivering the best possible service that you can but what do we do on an exceptional basis and i do believe people value experiences more than stuff 
So, you know, if it is a consumer business, then, you know, yes, rewards are easier to facilitate. Um, but sometimes even a phone call. And I remember another guest of mine talking and it was a hotel brand, um, Kimpton Hotels in the United States. And again, they had their Pareto principle. They knew their top, top, top guests. And they would just literally every quarter get the management team around a table with um, a phone on speaker. And they would call these particular top guests. And every member of the management team would literally explain to the guest how important and how much they valued that, that person's business. So I think even verbal affirmation, and we all know how busy we are. So to sit down and put time into having just a phone call is guaranteed to be something that has a wow factor. So I know for sure if, uh, if a company called me with a few people around the table and said, we love having you as a customer, what else can we do for you? And um, we're all here to, to listen, to contribute. I would be blown away. I just don't think there's enough of that in the world. I agree. And it's, uh, it's a simple thing that we should all be able to do, but probably quite rare. So, yeah, it's a very good very point. Very rare. Yeah. Um, I have noticed that you, you've worked with some pretty big brands um, mm -hmm. and I'm always interested to know how those relationships come about um, and also what you do for them. So am I yeah. right in saying that you're a consultant? Would that be accurate? I was a consultant in the past, would you believe? I am now a professional podcaster. <laughs> so that gives me great joy, actually, Thomas, because I literally just um, resigned my final consulting contract. And I have loved consulting, um, predominantly because I like the operational side of loyalty programs or of any business, I guess. And to answer your question, I got my first gig in loyalty um, purely by recommendation and referral. So somebody was dealing with actually Telefonica O2, which is a huge brand I know in the UK market, and they had a loyalty proposition that wasn't working. So again, the operations were, were suffering and um, their recruitment agency and uh, marketing search team, I guess, knew that my background meant I had exactly the right skills to fix the program. So I got in by virtue of, again, personal knowledge, which is always a blessing. And again, we know the best form of loyalty is, is advocacy. So somebody speaking on our behalf. And would you believe through uh, seven years of Telefonica in Ireland, the brand did change ownership and the loyalty program changed ownership through 10 different loyalty managers in seven years. So actually, I just became, um, for that length of time, actually quite invaluable, which was, I think, you know, again, good, good commitment and very, very clear intention from my part. And then they did very much come through referrals. Um, so I'm a, you know, very passionate believer in, you know, holding space and, you know, showing up as publicly as possible. So I would have done quite a few, I suppose, um, speaking engagements. I find that that's an incredible way to establish trust and credentialize yourself without having to sell. And inevitably, after a speaking engagement, people will approach they will probably have a problem and they believe you have a solution and we all buy solutions at the end of the day. So yeah, I think public speaking is one of the best things I've ever done. What's the reason why you didn't want to do it anymore? Because I love this platform and what I have learned, Thomas, is I have more questions than I have answers. 
and people expect consultants to have answers. And it always just made me super uncomfortable if it came, you know, maybe as just a, you know, an outreach through a channel where it wasn't somebody recommending me who knew me. I was always convinced they'd find, you know, catch me out or something, that there was something that I didn't know. So I just never felt fully up to date. And I still have that. I think it's called um, uh, imposter syndrome. <laughs> there you go. So what I have discovered is there's um, plenty of, I suppose, a different type of pressure as a podcast host, but um, inevitably, once I get past overthinking it, it's very enjoyable. And I have built it as a business. Like from the word go, I realized the loyalty industry needed much more connection between the service providers and the, uh, the marketeers. And I suppose conferences um, have a very good role to play. But as somebody who loves to travel, I just didn't even have the time or space to attend all of the conferences I wanted to. And I really think audio is a very, very powerful way actually to drive loyalty. This is something I have um, discovered since I started, that by showing up and having your voice on the you know, radio waves or podcast waves on a weekly or twice weekly basis, um, people do listen and they, they, they decide if they like you or they not. And thankfully, I have found enough people who decide they like me. So yeah, I have managed to bring on sponsors and uh, yeah, I love the business side of it. Well, well done for that. Congratulations, because I, um, I think there are a fair number of people trying it and uh, not many people perhaps <laughs> achieving at it. But um, Totally, totally. Thank you, Thomas. If you're 100% in, you know, all the yeah. way in, then I'm sure you'll do great. I think where it um, where people struggle is where they don't, they're not quite a hundred percent burn the boats, I think is the phrase. So it's totally, you're absolutely right, Thomas. Yeah. I, I, I have stopped and started, you know, blogs and, you know, all of the usual um, stuff on, in digital over the last uh, couple of years. So I took a very long time before making the decision to start it. And I was laser focused that I wanted it as a business. So I made the commitment that, okay, if I did have a sponsor, um, then of course I'd have to show up and release uh, content consistently. So even though I didn't, of course, like any business, you have to start and create the product. And that has definitely served me well. So yeah, just crossed the threshold of, you know, this is now an income that I can survive on. So yeah, I'm 100% in. Well, the good thing about that also is that I get to ask you pretty much anything and, you know, you, you don't have any uh, reservations about sharing too much value, right? Which I think totally. is the case sometimes. But, totally. Um, in terms of trends, other than the subscription model, what are the trends in loyalty? What are the trends? Well, I think partnerships is probably something that deserves discussion. And actually, that's the first program I started working with was based on a partnership model, because essentially what we know from loyalty programs as, I suppose, a proposition is that customers, if they do start to like a currency and see value in it, they want to be able to earn that currency um, quickly and easily or as quickly and easily as possible. So in the UK, Nectar is obviously a very successful program. But I think more and more companies are realizing that you don't even have to get into something as legally binding and as complex as, you know, an independent operated coalition program. 
But if you are a company that can find a complementary brand, then you can really give, you know, reciprocal benefits. So, you know, for example, like, you know, if I run a hair salon and there's a Starbucks down the road, you know, do I want to be able to give the customer, you know, coupons in the in the coffee shop to come get their hair done and, and vice versa? So I think any form of partnership, that's obviously a small example, but the ubiquity of making the loyalty program valuable to the member is a really big trend. There's one program in Japan, for example, that totally blew my mind, and it's called Rakuten, and they have a points-based program. It's a brand that is essentially the Amazon of Japan, but if you collect Rakuten points, you can use them in 600,000 stores. So it's utterly mind-blowing. It's a whole other scale. And I do think that trend of, you know, usability and the importance of the moment of truth and actually getting a reward is something that more loyalty marketeers are comfortable with. Because in the past, Thomas, what happened was, you know, programs would be built and let's say an airline, and they would assume that a certain amount of the points would never be used, the miles would never be claimed. And that is always true, and we call it breakage. But um, financial teams started to put pressure on marketing teams to, um, to disincentivize redemption so that the breakage would be higher, so they didn't have to give the reward. So that is definitely a trend as well, coming back again to you know ethical marketing and integrity. Um, more and more brands are saying, no, let's actually make sure that our customer gets the reward. Let's close the loop. And then we know actually the trust is complete then because they've gone full circle and then they'll go back in and I guarantee you they'll spend more. It seems like a fairly simple one to fix because there are expirations to some, some of these things. And I would think, you know, if it is about, as you say, ethics, you could just say, you know, if you don't use them in two years, your points will be donated to charity or something like that. Absolutely. And that is another trend, actually, Thomas, you know, and increasingly not just, you know, let's write one check to one charity from a company, but let's try and be more relevant, let's say, to local charities. I think Tesco, for example, have done that very well over the years, but certainly globally, that's another trend we would definitely see more of. I have just realized, actually, given our conversation, that maybe we do have a loyalty program because um, for every um, for every new client, uh, we sponsor a child um, and uh, in a in an underdeveloped country. Um, wow. And obviously they they as long as they are a client of ours, they continue to sponsor that child. Would you call that a loyalty program or is that something else? I would call it a loyalty initiative. Um, program tends to be associated with the full communications, the currency. So it's it's semantics, I think, in terms of the terminology. Um, it is a loyalty initiative. You are driving customer loyalty. And I think in that situation, I suppose even the fact that it didn't immediately come to mind for you may mean it doesn't immediately come to mind for your clients. So I think the absolute key is the communications piece. And perhaps another trend, if I was to add to the last point, to me, the biggest possible trend could be, you know, let's increase and improve our communications with customers, because I think, you know, emails work well, for sure, we know, for our newsletters and whatever else we send out. But I think we're all a little bit jaded of text-based communications. And clearly, we know the power of voice, we know the power of video. So perhaps your um, loyalty initiative 
does need more communications to make sure that all of your customers are really clear and feel really good about something that they're actually doing, but might lose sight of from time to time. Great point. Making a lot of good points here, Paula. <laughs> Glad to be helping. <laughs> so um, in terms of our last couple of questions, I wanted to ask you this because um, I feel like you touched upon something regarding companies who make a loyalty program and maybe they haven't quite done the research on whether or not the client would actually use it or see it as being valuable. So if you were starting out with a loyalty um, endeavor, then mm. how would you go about ensuring that it's actually something that's desirable to your customer? I think, first of all, you need to be very honest with yourself about what business you are in. And I say that by, you know, I suppose looking at so many industries like if you look at the insurance industry, for example, there's probably not much point building a points program because you can't really convince somebody to spend more on, you know, insurance. In fact, they want to do the opposite. Um, convenience retail, I do a huge amount of work with. And again, it has almost been an inconvenience in many instances to join a loyalty program when all I want to do is either pay for my fuel or, you know, pick up the newspaper, for example. So I think it's super important to be understanding your objectives. Um, why are you building a loyalty program and have a single mission, a single vision for what this loyalty initiative or program is intended to do? So there are lots of industry experts. And again, I'm a member of a lot of these kind of networks of loyalty consultants who can really advise you on the structure, the format, the mechanics, and I suppose the, the whole PL that would go around a loyalty program even before you start. So it should be around driving profitable behavior change, uh, but it's clear that you have to understand who are those most profitable customers already and what room is there for them to spend more. So in my experience, loyalty programs work well when there's a lot of sameness in the service or the product or at least perceived sameness. Um, so airlines or telecommunications companies. So, you know, if I have a phone package, you know, this is where O2 taught me so much, for example. How different is it? You know, let's compare Vodafone and O2. So how do you differentiate one from the other? And in that instance, for sure, you can build a very powerful loyalty proposition. And again, as long as your customers are aware of it, you'd be surprised how many are not and understand it and, of course, engage with it. I think those are the things. But it comes back to the point, actually, we talked about briefly, Thomas, about talking to your customers. It's not rocket science. Um, I would certainly be considering various propositions rather than making any assumptions about what a customer or a member might enjoy. And, uh, yeah, build something that they actually think, yeah, that actually is something I understand. So simplicity is critical. And then obviously building on top of that to say, okay, great. Yeah, I'll definitely join if you build it. So you do need to have the customer feedback before you do anything. Thank you for that. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard the, the phrase in terms of how to grow a business, but it's like um, there's three ways to grow a business, more customers, um, increase the transaction size, or um, the business uh, is probably frequency. the other, the frequency. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I mean, loyalty, 
I would say is perhaps frequency, because obviously if they're doing it more often over a longer period, then that's another way to grow your business. Um, why do you think it is the case that um, loyalty is overlooked and um, new customers is almost always the go-to? It, it breaks my heart, I have to say, Thomas, um, and it is a, a huge problem. The reason I believe is simply because the statistical analysis and attribution of the investment in loyalty is very hard to prove. So we often hear, for example, people saying, oh, yes, my members of my loyalty program spend five times as much as my non-members. But of course, they spend more already. So that doesn't mean it's because of your loyalty program. So to identify what is the lever that's driving that um, spend behavior, it's really difficult to isolate it, to measure it, and to prove the return on the loyalty investment. So most of the loyalty directors and managers or finance teams that I would have worked with, we spend a lot of time, I suppose, just kind of trying to prove to each other whether we're doing a good job or not, like defending our loyalty programs. So that's very hard to do over a long term. And again, if you don't have the right level of expertise, which I certainly didn't, and I still wouldn't have that type of expertise, I find, you know, it's really something that people should invest in to get maybe an independent analysis done on their loyalty program if they have one to find out if it's working. And if so, which parts of it are working and which parts of it might be actually an expensive part that's not changing behavior in a way that's profitable for the business. So, yes, acquiring customers is always kind of seen as the easy win. And a loyalty program as well just takes a very long time. It is a relationship, like any relationship, that you have to invest in forever. So when companies have quarterly sales targets and all of these other things they want to do, um, it's much more, um, you know, I suppose, business friendly to say to your shareholders, we got all these new customers, um, rather than necessarily, yeah, we've engaged them in the loyalty program and we think they'll spend more over time because this is what we're driving. So, yeah, difficult conversations for sure. Are there any businesses that you think, why aren't they focusing more on loyalty as not necessarily individual businesses, but categories of, um, of businesses? Um, I think it's, it's a very well-established business, if I'm honest, Thomas. But in fact, my show today was about a, a loyalty program in the real estate business, would you believe? And it's a, it's a groundbreaking program. It's based out of New York at the moment. It's called Built Rewards, B-I-L-T. And to me, this is something that has global relevance. And the insight is that particularly for younger demographics like Gen Z or millennials, their biggest monthly expenditure is their rent. And they're not getting recognized for paying the rent on time. They're not getting recognized or any rewards for remaining a resident in a particular property. And for landlords, there is a pain point, actually, because, you know, if people do move out, obviously, then they have to go and find new tenants or new residents. And, you know, there's just a lot of inherent cost with replacing them. So if I was to say, where's the biggest, the next big thing, I think Built Rewards have identified something that nobody had really thought about. So, yeah, I think that's a very exciting opportunity. Might be a gap in the market there. 
totally, totally. You heard it here first. So um, what are your goals for your podcast, Paula? My goals for my podcast ideally are to continue to make a big difference and grow the audience. So I am very proud of the audience that I have. But, you know, there's over a million loyalty marketeers in the world, uh, according to LinkedIn. So um, I definitely don't have a million listeners. Um, and I guess I would love to find a way to make it more efficient for me. So it is extremely time consuming and intensive, as I needn't tell you, to show up and release two shows every week. So, yeah, my goal would be that I would be able to expand it in ways that don't require me to do everything. So maybe create a community of loyalty professionals or, you know, write a book about what I've learned from the show. There's lots of other great goals that I have. But, um, yeah, a little, um, you know, up to my eyes, let's say, with them, with everything I'm already doing. Any TED Talks on the horizon? Ooh, someday. That, um, that round piece of red carpet, Thomas, what can I tell you? It's got its own brand identity for sure. Definitely. <laughs> so, um, is there anything that um, I haven't asked you about today regarding loyalty that you think would be of value to the audience? Um, not really. I suppose my fundamental, I suppose, guiding principle would be, again, what a guest shared, um, a very well-known guest in our industry, comes from Bain & Company, very, very big consulting firm. And Rob Markey founded the, um, the loyalty division um, within Bain & Company. And when he came on the show, he talked about a founder's mentality. And by that, he obviously meant particularly anybody who has launched a company really values their customers way more than professional managers do. So obviously, everybody can have that. But if anybody's listening and wondering, how do I build loyalty? Well, think like the owner, even if you're not the owner. How can I take care of people better? So yeah, if that was um, one simple way to think about loyalty, I think that's a, that's a really good lesson. Well, thank you for making the distinction distinction between the concept of loyalty and a loyalty program, because I immediately thought of it as though it's a loyalty program, but um, it's kind of the same outcome, or maybe even you may even get a better outcome from loyalty rather than a loyalty program. So um, totally, it's one yes, learning no. that I've taken away, and I'm sure when I um, watch it again, which I will, I'll take another one or two away. So thank you. Sure. Great. Well, I'm happy to have helped. Where's the best place for people to find you, Paula? The best place, Thomas, is LinkedIn, where Paula Thomas is, uh, you know, pretty easy to find. Certainly, if you put Paula Thomas and loyalty anywhere, I should be easy to find. I'm happy to chat on LinkedIn or my own website is letstalkloyalty.com. So very easy as well for people to find me there. And people can learn more from listening to the podcast. Yeah. Always, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Thomas.